Hello, thank you for tuning in. You are listening to the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. For network or show information, visit byteradio.me or call 843-808-0777. And now, the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Good day, everyone, and thank you for joining us for this edition of the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Today, my special guest is Paul Wheaton, and we will be discussing a book that he co-authored with Sean Klassen-Coop called Building a Better World in Your Backyard Instead of Being Angry at Bad Guys. Make a huge, positive global difference from your own home. Prioritize comfort over sacrifice while saving thousands of dollars. Explore dozens of solutions and their impacts on carbon footprint, petroleum footprint, toxic footprint, and other environmental issues. If 20% of the population implemented half of the solutions in this book, it would solve the biggest global problems, all without writing to politicians, joining protests, signing petitions, or being angry at the people that are causing the problems. Join Paul and Sean on a journey featuring simple alternatives that you may never have thought of, alternatives which are about building a more symbiotic relationship with nature so that we all can live uh, even lazier. Nature nurtures nurtures us all. For more information, you can uh, visit the website permies.com forward slash BWB. That's P-E-R-M-I-E-S dot com forward slash B-W-B. And with that, I'd like to welcome Paul to the show. Good day, Paul. Hello, Robert. Thanks for having me. It is my pleasure. I'm, I am looking forward to our chat. I'm in addition to having um, a wonderful book. Um, I've watched your YouTube videos, and uh, you are a character that you just can't turn away from. You have to listen to. <laughs> so uh, I've been looking forward <laughs> I should have you do all my PR. <laughs> How's that for a, a little tease or twist? So, well, anyway, but I'm, I, truly, I am looking forward to it. You know, you have some uh, wonderful points to make in, and, um, in your book as well. So um, I know watching one of those YouTube videos that you have used the word permaculture to millions, over 22 million at the time of the YouTube video, millions of times. But not everybody knows what permaculture is. So would you mind sharing with the listeners what the topic is? Okay. And so uh, I think if you, for every perming you ask, for every permaculture enthusiast you ask, you'll get a different answer. Uh, my particular answer is uh, permaculture is a more symbiotic relationship with nature so that I can be even lazier. That's why we kind of added okay. it to the description on the book. <laughs> So is I mean is, is so other people the variations is it basically what the, you know their um, I mean is the idea, the whole idea is just working with nature instead of against it I mean is that you know I would that say, whole idea Yes I think a lot of us come to permaculture from gardening like we do gardening and then we do organic gardening and then we go beyond organic gardening. And then we find ourselves enjoying permaculture. But permaculture, the word permaculture actually includes natural building and alternative energy and a variety of other things as well. But I think most of us come to it from gardening. And I 
feel like a great example of working with nature instead of against it would be when you have, a, I always give the example of a potato crop. You have, a, you have 40 acres of potatoes, and you're trying to raise them organically. Um, then when the Colorado potato beetle shows up and starts wiping out the crop, then you kind of panic and you try to come up with a solution where you're thinking like, I need teeny tiny machine guns to shoot all the beetles to get them to go away and, and leave my crop alone. Um, permaculture is more like I've added so much diversity to the landscape and I've got such a polyculture of a mix of potatoes and 50 other species all growing together in different places that if Colorado potato beetles come and attack a single potato plant, then um, we're thinking like, well, nature has decided that that potato plant shouldn't be there. Like there's, the nature is going to take that potato plant away and something else will grow there. And uh, uh, so nature's, I'm working with nature. Take that plant, plant away. I have the collar. Because over here I've got another potato plant, and the Colorado potato beetles seem to be absolutely uninterested in that. And so there's something about mm. that spot that works better for potatoes. And the potatoes will be happy, healthy, and vibrant there. Whereas in this spot where there are beetles, uh, nature's taking it out. And then maybe sunflowers will grow there really well instead of potatoes. And we're like, okay. Yeah. And then in the end, yeah. we have, you know, a lot of food coming out of this system. And uh, we've also had a lot of insects come and go that normal organic gardeners would be very concerned about. But the permaculture gardener is not. So that would be one example out of many yeah. out of what I see as what is permaculture when compared to organic practices. Okay. What was it that, I mean, you obviously have a passion for it. I mean, when, when you, you see the talks, when you read the book, you have a passion for this. What would you attribute that to? I mean, you know, there are a lot, a lot of people, you know, enjoy gardening or, you know, working with nature, but you have like a, a passion <laughs> for it. Uh, t t tell us a little bit about how that came about. Wow. Um I'm, I, I, how do you describe passion getting activated? I'm, I'm not, I'm not sure. I, I do know that for gardening, I had no interest in gardening for years, uh, and then one year I just became obsessed. I kind of had a, I started a little bit of a garden and almost everything died, and then I felt so horrible. <laughs> Um, uh -huh. and, and so I went and I read more than 100 gardening books all in one summer uh, in order to, be a, to take good care of a garden. I, I just became obsessed. Um, how did I become obsessed? I have no idea. Magic happened. <laughs> <laughs> and then, boom, baby, there I am. I can't stop. No can't stop back. gardening. Um, no holding back, I'm sure. Yeah. That kind of grew and grew and grew, and it was. I remember in 2004, I was uh, armpit deep in permaculture and so enthusiastic, and I had a full time job as a software engineer. And uh, it just hit me that it's like I can see a way where one person who works very hard can carry permaculture to a larger audience 
and um, and basically save the world. And I had tried to persuade other people to do it, and they wouldn't, because <laughs> that would have been uh-huh. even lazier. <laughs> and I realized that uh-huh. if it's going to get done, I have to quit my career and do it. And that was actually really easy to do because I was so obsessed with doing it. And I've been obsessed ever since. And uh, you watched a video where I talked about 22 million, bringing the word permaculture to 22 million. I've now brought it to more than 100 million people. So um, uh, I continue to reach more people and do more stuff and and produce more artifacts which help people to understand certain things and then and now looky here a book i wrote a book <laughs> yeah well you know and, and the one thing also that um i found interesting is when you in, in that particular talk you also mentioned mentioning it to people multiple times so it seems like this is the kind of thing that um needs reinforcing in order to take root, so to speak, in other people? I think a lot of permaculture people are kind of like, here's what I'm going to do is I'm going to go tell people, hey, you, you, over there, permaculture is good. Say it back to me. You're going to do it now, okay? Do it. Do it. And I kind of feel like that really doesn't go anywhere. Uh, And so my strategy has been more like, uh, uh, look, here's a cool thing. And... uh, um, uh, it makes it so that your garden grows better and, and you get more honey from your honeybees and you, you know, whatever. Here's all these, here's a tidbit. I call them uh, bricks for building a better world. And so then here's an, a fascinating tidbit of information. And then when I'm done showing them that's fascinating, I say, it's permaculture. And so I kind of feel like what I do is I'll share hundreds or thousands of little tidbits and then at the end, I keep saying, that's permaculture. And then after a while, I feel like people will have heard permaculture so many times associated with good things, they they're kind of get this thing of like, oh, I heard a lot about this permaculture, and it sounds like a good thing, so I'm going to look into it some more. You know? That's my yeah. strategy. Does that... Uh, does that well, answer it, the question? Yeah. I'm not sure. Did I dodge oh, the yeah, question it does, it does. adequately? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. That is exactly no. That that you answered it perfectly because you know, I, and I agree with you that that um, the the approach of making positive connections to what it is and, and reinforcing it, I think is is going to be much more effective than trying to dictate and, and um, push onto other onto people things that you know either they may not understand or may not want or you know just may not be interested so um no i i agree with that so now obviously you've gotten over the years like you mentioned thousands of tidbits um how did you um and sean go about deciding what items were to be included in building a better world in your backyard um <clears throat> Actually, 90% of the conversation was what to exclude from the book. So mm-hmm. um, we, we st- what we started out with was enormous. It's like this, this, it, and I kind of feel like a long document is an unread document. And so mm-hmm. um, the, the book, I think, is fairly lean. It's, it's like a, 170 pages. 
and uh, and it's got a lot of illustrations in it. Uh, and so we we felt like what we would rather have is a small book that gets read a hundred times more than mm-hmm. have like a forty-seven volume set of books that you know have the details for everything. And uh, so your question is is how did we decide what to put in it? <laughs> and uh, yeah. and it's like oh we got we had so much to put in it. It was it was more like what's the best of the best? And then let's take each of those things and how do we make it one-tenth of the size while conveying 80% of the information we want to convey? And I think we did a pretty good job. But a lot of it, so um, for example, uh, I know that early in the book, uh, I, I feel strongly that one of the biggest impediments that we hit is the stuff about light bulbs. And so I think it's like chapter three of the book is about the light bulbs. And and it's uh, and so we can say, like, look, the light bulb thing is dumb. Let's throw it away. We've got to get past it. And what I've written on light bulbs is massive. And it's like, well, we don't need all that. We need maybe a fifth of that. And then so we condensed it down. And then as it turns out, Sean... Did and he got a little obsessed on his own and and found a lot of other research that he wanted to add mention to in the chapter. So that one was a tough one to keep as small as it is. But one of the things that we learned was that when it comes to those stupid light bulb things, is that we had to, we found out that when we sent it out for review, when we sent the book out, like bef- while it was during uh, while it was during the editing phase. We sent it out to 100 different people and asked for their feedback that we had to say it three times in the chapter. This is a stupid thing <laughs> that we have to get past. <laughs> right. Well, you know, and yeah, and, and that, I mean, that that chapter, you know, I, I had highlighted because I just thought it was, you know, I mean, very interesting. I mean, it was just um, and the, the title of it was "The Wicked Lies About Light Bulbs." Um, now, in that chapter, um, I think it was the last um, subtopic in that tra- chapter was talking about it as the, the whole idea behind light bulbs and, and converting and, and, and basically all those little lies that you talk about it was the, that it's an ultimate example of greenwashing. Now, I had never heard that phrase before so what what is that greenwashing is where you're going to take a product that may or may not be good for the environment and you're going to put a lot of marketing into it that says it's really good for the environment now uh i think an act like like the best example ever for greenwashing is the CFL. Now we could talk about the the chapter. We left we kind of left CFLs out, and the chapter is focused on the LED. But I think the CFL is such an excellent example. And um, basically, when the CFL came out, even when fluorescent lights came out, um, they had their problems. But it turned out that fluorescent lighting you could get uh, lighting for uh, slightly less money. If you basically left the lights on for more than eight hours at a time, if you were turning the lights on and off, the lifespan of the of the fluorescent light was 
dramatically reduced. And then on top of that, there were a variety of problems with people getting sick around them, um, no, most notably epileptics. But um, as time passed, we were finding that it lowered the IQs of children and it actually led to people getting cancer. Uh, not a, uh, another one would be just a more direct thing, would be um, uh, UV burns. And, uh, and then plus some of them, the, uh, they would catch on fire. Uh, they would just ignite. And, and so it's like there's a, this long list of problems, but the bulbs were all marketed as good for the environment. It would say it right on the package, yeah. like, oh, it's so good. it saves so much energy. And it's like, and uh, uh, so there was this enormous marketing program. And, and in fact, all of the writing that I did um, started with a conversation. I had an opportunity to visit with a legislator, and she was explaining to me how proud she was that she was sponsoring legislation to subsidize CFLs. And I started to talk to her about, like, you know, CFLs are really problematic and that there's, you know, and she's she held up her hand and stopped me. She literally put her hand between us to stop me <laughs> and said, I don't, I don't want to hear your crazy talk. And that's kind mm -hmm. of the thing. And she was a lovely person, and she's trying to do a good, right. lovely thing. And of course, you know, there's there there have been these lobbyists that have told her about how great it is and how much energy it saves and stuff like that. And it, it and then in the end, the more research I did, the worse they came out to be. And so, all right, I have a whole chapter talking about it, and it's going to provide a bunch of information that I think a lot of people aren't going to be really keen on hearing. Um, but I, I think that we do a very good job of explaining that it is not, it, it is, it is, it is trivial. If it, if it does everything it claims, if these light bulbs do everything that they claim, the amount of energy that they save is trivial. It's so small. It doesn't really make any difference at all. But even more than that, the number one thing when it comes to carbon footprint, if you're going to improve your carbon footprint, the number one thing is if you live in a cold climate, it's your heat. Your heat is by mm -hmm. far the largest of the carbon footprint. In fact, um, if you live in Montana, which I do, which is just an example of a cold climate, if you switch from electric heat to, say, using a rocket mass heater, then it uh, saves as much, it reduces your carbon footprint as much as parking seven cars, not switching them over to electric because that's uh, two tons of savings per car, but for, uh, for parking it, that's four tons of savings. And so this thing about your heat will reduce it as, as much as parking seven cars. So clearly heat's a big player. And the bizarre thing is, <clears throat> is that an incandescent light bulb, the, the standard that we compare to, puts out not only light, but, you know, it's often talked about like, oh, and it also puts out all this heat, which is just wasted. Well, unless you live in a cold climate. Because the other thing is the kind of heat that it puts out is a very efficient form of heat. So in the wintertime, it happens to get cold and dark 
at the same time. And so here in Montana, uh, when we get into a deep winter, our days are only like seven hours long. So we have a lot of lighting needs and we have a lot of heating needs at the same time. So a very efficient form of heat, so efficient that I did a, a collection of experiments and I showed how uh, with using a, an incandescent light bulb in combination with some other microheaters uh, with 82 watts, a total, so 40 watt incandescent light bulb plus 42 watts of, of other heating devices, that uh, I was able to save $900 in a single winter on my heating bill. And so um, it's kind of like, now that's real savings, real yeah. savings. <laughs> Whereas if you're going to go yeah. through your house and you're going to spend $200 on light bulbs, you might be saving something on the order of $20 a year. And if you save more than $20 a year, I kind of feel like there might be, a, there might be another problem here. Like, how much light do you right. need, buddy? <laughs> so uh, I, I kind of feel like the, the, the key is, is that this is a and, – and I like to think that my book, anybody who opens my book, I like to think that 80% of it is going to be stuff that you've never heard of before but is well proven. And so it's going to be I, – because I kind of think that if somebody's listening right now and they're, they're thinking, like, oh, some uh, – some other guy has come out with a book about, you know, sacrifices, like, I, you know, drive less, you know, and uh, stuff like that. And I kind of feel like this is radically different, radically different. Now, granted, I, I do want to talk about driving less, but my angle on it is the opposite. Rather than it being sacrifice, it's kind of like, how do we create an environment where the reader has such a wonderful, luxuriant, magnificent life, and they've got a giant gas-guzzling vehicle, which they can. we beg them, drive it as much as you want. Go for a drive. Go for a Sunday drive. And they end up firing it up only like twice a year because all their other needs are and wants are met, and, and it's more luxuriant for them to stay home. What do we need to do to make an environment so that it's more wonderful to be at home than to go out and about? And then in which case, yeah. it's like having a, a giant gas-guzzling vehicle is actually has a lower carbon footprint than a Tesla because you just leave it parked 95% or more of the time. <laughs> So, you know, you, you mentioned in that um, answer the carbon footprint, but also um, the book um, addresses petroleum footprint and toxic footprint. So um, can you kind of give us an example of um, our um, our footprint in e each of those areas and, maybe, and you know, maybe how um, the book Building a Better World um, – could help with those? Well, it kind of comes back to how we needed to limit the scope of the book in order to be able to okay. say all the important mm -hmm. things. So we elected, we selected three footprints to focus on, uh, three environmental problem areas and uh, uh, things that, that people can do themselves. Now, of course, you know, there's, there's more. There's, there's 
probably at least a hundred things where there are big problems in the world. But by focusing on these three, if we can mitigate these three, it, it probably um, uh, solves 80% of all of the world's problems. And so it's kind of like, all right, so let's just focus on these three. So we've got carbon footprint. The um, An American adult has a carbon footprint of 30 tons. Now, 15 tons of that is direct, and 15 tons of that is indirect. So they buy the second 15 tons. Uh, and so part of the discussion is is like, well, what can be some dollar choices that make it so that you're, um, you know, you, to mitigate that 15 tons? The next thing is uh, petroleum footprint. And so, and again, it's direct and indirect. Direct is about 500. We, we, we decided to uh, use a metric of gasoline. And so, of course, petroleum is, is more than just gasoline. But uh, and then we could have also mm -hmm. expanded it to be fossil fuels, but we decided to stick to petroleum, and we decided that our unit of measurement was going to be in gallons of gasoline. So once again, half of it, half of your footprint is direct, like gasoline that you buy and put in your car. The average American, the average adult, it's 500 gallons that you purchase directly, and then the other 500 is you purchase indirectly. So you went to the grocery store, and getting to the grocery store and back, that was direct. And then you bought a bunch of carrots. And so then there was petroleum that went into mm -hmm. those carrots. And uh, so some of the petroleum was fertilizers for the carrots, and some of the petroleum was uh, involved in uh, getting those carrots to you or getting shipping the fertilizers and other materials to where the carrots are being grown, or uh, the, uh, uh, the petroleum that was used to, to run the tractors and harvesting equipment and things like that to bring you the carrots. So <clears throat> within everything that you buy, there is a petroleum footprint. Uh, the, the third footprint we did was toxic footprint, and this one's really squirrely because Toxins come in many flavors, and they are measured in so many different ways. So we needed something, and, and forgive me while I have certain humor needs, and at the same time <laughs> I like to make up words, uh, and I, um, uh, I, I don't know. I have a, a, a certain amount of silly that I'm going to do in order to get a job done. I need tools. I make stuff up to be a tool so that way I can make a point. So um, there was a, um, a guy uh, named Joel Salatin, and people would say to him about uh, something about how, um, oh, organic food is so expensive. And he says, you think that's expensive? Have you priced cancer lately? And, and he makes an excellent point about how Americans are certain that cancer comes from the cancer fairy. And that it, when when somebody gets cancer, our reaction is to say, ah, that's too bad. How unlucky of you to get cancer. I, and it's kind of like the way that they speak of it is as if the, the, the uh, cancer fairy came and sprinkled 
uh, toxic fairy dust on you and bang, you got cancer. But the person sitting next to you, they didn't get the toxic fairy dust. And so the, the, the thing that I'm trying to say is, is that when you get enough toxins accumulated in your life, then you get cancer. So um, if you make a bunch of choices so that you have very little toxic fairy dust in your life, then you don't get cancer or you're less likely to get cancer. So I, I kind of feel like cancer comes from carcinogens. More, right. most, most importantly, carcinogens that we know of and carcinogens that we do not yet know of. So we haven't, like we haven't documented it. <clears throat> Just because we haven't documented doesn't mean it doesn't exist. So I think that that's that it's important to embrace that massive area. Um, yeah. All right. So I came up with this thing about and I I said I just made this up and it's and so forgive me as I take a little bit of license in order to make some points. And I said okay. I said that our toxic footprint um, that the uh, uh, the average adult. A uh, person in the United States has a, uh, a a toxic footprint load of 100 pounds of toxic fairy dust. Okay, so I know that that's a little crazy, a little nutty, but we needed a metric. So that means, of course, that there's a lot of stuff that's going to be just in the book where it's just silly. We're trying we're trying to compare apples to oranges to steaks to softballs. To wrenches, and it's like it's it's a complicated space. So um, we are doing our best to try to come up with one metric that fits for everything. And granted, it's not exactly your most uh, uh, scientific lockdown numbers, but it's like, and, and I'm and I'm trying to say this information is extremely squirrely to begin with, and and so. Which is which makes it very easy to dismiss and ignore. Now, granted, we there is mountains of research showing connections between many products and many substances and cancer, but there's also other ailments besides cancer. Anyway, I this yeah. this quickly becomes a topic that can fill many many shelves in a library. And so um, I'm trying to reduce it down to be something because it's like I, I, want, I want to be able to address this and move on. Now, that said, I believe that there was an item in the very first paragraph of the book that brought up with my staff like three months of debate. And in the end, I... Um, even though we found the information that backed up what I said, we still we still reduced the number a bit. So I stated that uh, cancer is 400 times more prevalent in society today than it was in the 1860s. And I, we, I chose the 1860s because we start the book by quoting... Uh, uh, Dickens's book, uh, Tale of Two Cities. And so um, so we're talking about, like I think it's 1863 or something like that is when that book was written. 
And so since that point in time until now, cancer is 400 times more prevalent, not 400%, 400 times more prevalent. And uh, in the book, we softened that number down to 100, even though we found the references to support 400. All right. So your question was, what were the three footprints? And I took a very mm-hmm. long time to make a very long answer, and I, I feel like I need to <laughs> I need to let this one go. No, no, that's good. No, you know, and, and you know, that, that's the one thing nice about the book is it, you know, boils it, boils it down. But also, you know, the idea of, of have, having um, some lightheartedness, um, I think is, is important, you know, because no one wants to read a, a downer book on, on how everything is wrong with their life, you know, and or if, you know, some things are wrong, at least, you know, give me a, a way to fix it, you know, like how can I go on a toxic fairy dust diet, <laughs> you know, to get rid of, you know, some of that, some of that stuff. But um, I think these topics are uh, very heavy. They're, I mean, it's painful. Yeah, and and I yeah. think that most of the writings that are out there, everything that I've ever seen, is about sacrifice. And I and I and I think we did a really good job of making this book have no sacrifice. It's it's yeah. just bits of knowledge, and then with these bits of knowledge, you we make your life more luxuriant while you simultaneously resolve global issues, at least your personal footprint on these global issues. And as and, and that's not all, there's more. We I think we put thousands of dollars into your pocket that otherwise wouldn't be there. Yeah. You know, the idea of luxuriant environmentalism, I mean those are that's like a a double plus or you know a a win win kind of um solution to some of the things that are going on. Um, well, Paul, we are more than halfway through the show, so I want to take just a quick break. I do want to invite listeners, if you would like to call in and ask Paul any questions, you can call in at 619-789-4359. For those listening live in the chat room, if you'd like to pose any questions, feel free to type them in there. And then when we come back from break, Paul, you know, I want to, you know, you, you mentioned about driving that, uh, that gas guzzler last. So, um, and in today's environment, you know, we're having had a lot of people driving a lot less. So when we come back, if maybe you can give us your perspective on, you know, what's been going on the, these past few months and how that impacts um, building a better world. Okay? Okay. Okay, great. Everyone stay tuned. We'll be right back after this very brief break. Hello, this is Robert Sharp. I want to thank you for joining us and hope that you are enjoying today's show. Just a reminder that we have a wealth of information and resources available on our website, byteradio.me. There is a calendar of upcoming shows along with an archive link that will give you access to more than 1,400 shows we have had over the past nine years. Also on the site, is a link to the products and services we provide, books, photography, a wellness store, and self-publishing assistance. Our show is a free podcast on iTunes, Blog Talk Radio, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. And you can subscribe for free on any of those platforms by using the links on our website homepage. 
We are on many social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, etc. And we also have buttons to those platforms at the top of our home page. Our website, byteradio.me, has much for you to explore and enjoy. I also very much appreciate you supporting our guests, and especially today's guest. And now, back to the show. Okay, everyone. Thank you for staying with us again today. My special guest is Paul Wheaton. He, along with his co-author, Sean Klassen-Coop, have authored the book, Building a Better World in Your Backyard, Instead of Being Angry at Bad Guys. And again, you can find out more by visiting the website, which is permies.com forward slash BWB. That's P-E-R-M-I-E-S, like Permies, permaculture permies, permies.com forward slash BWB. Okay, with that, we're back, Paul. Hello. (laughs) Hello. And I I do want to say also, um, before we continue on, um, that website is wonderful. (laughs) You have got uh, some a wide variety of uh, resources and information. It's, um, you can get lost in it. <laughs> it's really great. So I just wanted to give you my compliments. It's a, it's a really uh, well-done and well-resourced website. Why, thank you. Um, uh, there's a lot of people that I've heard um, um, maybe 50 times in the last year that forums are dead, <clears throat> and so I'm baffled because our forums are growing every year. Um, we yeah. we seem to get more traffic each year, but uh, uh, we we favor perennial discussion, and uh, it's a little bit different. A lot of people are like, "Oh, here's the topic," and it's like you got 24 hours to talk about it before this thing falls off the face of the earth, and you're kind of they're kind of used to that in social media. But on our site, it's uh, we we believe strongly in perennial discussion, so we've got threads that have been going strong for 10 years or more. And so I imagine that's what you're talking about. You went and you found a topic on something where it's like you're reading the whole thing like, oh, wow, I had never Uh thought of that. And then then at the bottom it says, here's some similar topics. And the next thing you know, you're boing, going off to another one. And and it's like, oh, wow. I know. know. It's that rabbit hole. (laughs) Yes. But, yes. but that's but then you know but see I mean that's the thing is is that you know you stimulate curiosity and you know and I think people um, respond to that you know to, I mean there is a curiosity and they're, they're going to follow it and until it's satisfied and and that's a that's a really good thing and then you have global resources and educational things and just all kinds of great stuff on there so but anyway I just want to let the listeners know that it's a, a you know if you're spending time at home and you want to uh, improve your life and uh, have some fascinating information to visit the site so okay so now um, okay um, we're obviously in a period right now that we've gone through with all the lockdowns and all kinds of you know with the like, COVID stuff um, how has the um, our current experience? How has that um, highlighted or maybe contributed to the idea behind your book of building a, a, a better world? Well, I think that part of it is going to be that we have seen where if we drive less and we stay at home what a dramatic impact it has had on the environment. 
I think that uh, it's it's like we've uh, you know rolled back 30 years on air pollution. I mean, is that about right? I haven't really studied it, um, but it seems like uh, the evidence is there that pollution dropped dramatically during this time, air pollution at least. That, mm-hmm. I, th- I think that that's true. I think that that's accurate. I've I've not really studied it, but I've noticed a couple of little articles about it and how profound it is. And it's like, yay! <laughs> so <clears throat> there's there's that. But, um, and then yeah. before the break, you presented to me the question of like, okay, yeah, if somebody drives their vehicle less, then it saves a lot. But rather than telling them to drive it less, what can we do to make an environment for them such that they just don't want to go anywhere? And and it's kind of like, the, and so your question was, what's that smell like? Was that your question? Maybe it was. <laughs> I <laughs> so how did, that work, how but did that we get the there? <laughs> how, how did we get there? What what does that look like? Uh-huh. Well, I think one way of looking at it is going to be, suppose suppose you got millions of dollars, you got infinite money. Now now what do you do? Or or it's your time for your retirement. Like, oh, you put in your time, and now you are 65 years old, and you're going to retire. And so what is your idea of the ultimate retirement, or at least a really great retirement? What does that look like? What what will you do? And then I wish to paint, a, I wish to paint two pictures. I wish to paint the picture of Gert, and then so there's a chapter in there where I present basically, uh, it's called Radi- Radically Deviant Financial Strategies. And I present a story of Ferd and Gert. And Ferd has a job and Gert does not. But in our story, Gert has a, a small humble home, which she has fully paid for. And she has a massive garden. And uh, she lives in a community of like-minded folk. And so it's not that she's unemployed and desperately needing a job. It's that she doesn't need a job. And so so in a sense, in a way, you could argue that she is retired. And so, but it's like I'm going to say Gert is 35. I just made that up right now um, because Gert is, you know, a figment of my imagination. I can do anything I want with Gert. <laughs> so, um, and and so basically, uh, uh, Gert, um, uh, she does a little gardening from time, but she's realized the uh, the permaculture promise. And uh, out of her gardens, she does very little work, and she produces a large amount of food. And um, uh, so most of her time is spent, you know, harvesting and preserving food. And, well, most of her time that you might call work. So, like, most of the year is wintertime, and she doesn't do anything. Um, and then throughout most of the spring and summer, she's not doing very much in the form of food preservation. Usually most of that's in the fall. So I kind of talk about the amount of time that Ferd spends with his job in getting food. He's going to drive mm-hmm. to a restaurant or to a grocery store. He's going to sit at the restaurant and wait for his food to be brought to him, to be prepared and brought to him. Uh, And then, of course, he has to part with a certain amount of coin to be able to get that food. But just from the time perspective, I try to paint a picture that I think that the amount of time that Ferd spends on food 
is roughly the equivalent to the amount of time that Gert spends on food. All right, so I've, I'm kind of walking a long ways away from the question, but I'm trying to paint a picture of how now Gert basically pursues whatever her hobbies are. She has friends in her area where they're all within walking distance. And um, uh, she has plenty of food. She has almost no expenses. And and so is it fair to say that she's retired? Now, in the, in the chapter, I basically present the idea of I give Gert a million dollars and Gert chooses to do nothing different. So other than she now has a million dollars sitting in a bank account somewhere that she doesn't really do anything with. And so is it fair to say that Gert is a permaculture millionaire, whether I give her the million dollars or not. And, and, and so I think that this is kind of like a retirement package for a lot of people. This is what they seek in their retirement. Now, as part of that chapter of radically deviant financial strategies, I then propose some ways to be able to exit the rat race. So you've got a bunch of debt, and you need to get out of debt. And um, and then once you're out of debt, you need to be able to acquire this property and have come up with a home, and then of course you know create the gardens. So the destination might be what what we keep. Because I wrote something like I don't know six years ago about Ferdinand, and and as the years have passed, we now use this word gertitude a lot. We are pursuing <laughs> gertitude. Right. And and so uh, for for me it's as natural as breathing anymore. The, the the key is is that I try to outline a plan to get out of the rat race and get retired. And then once of course when you're in the state of gratitude, we do say that Gert has a pickup truck that she fires up twice a year for fun to go to go somewhere and have fun. And uh, but the rest of the time she has more fun at home with her community. So. I mean, there's a, there's a much richer story to that, and I kind of feel like the rest yeah. of the book helps to augment the story of Gert a bit here and there. Um, but I I kind of feel like that is a possible. I'm not requiring people to pursue Gertitude, but I kind of feel like right. Right. there's going to be Gert like Gert could have siblings that do similar things but different, you know. And and so what what I could ask you, Robert, what's your you know, Gert-like destination, and and you could describe that, and and maybe that, then and then you'll work towards that, and maybe right. in time you also would be like, I find myself getting into my rig twice a year because you know just for giggles, I want to go to visit my uh, uh, friend over two states away just for fun, and say, your no. garden sucks. <laughs> you look at my garden. You, know, you should be my garden. You know, it's, it's so much better than yours. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'm making this up. Yeah. No, I'm sure yours is more than mine. Um, uh, well, you know the, you know, and I understand um, that process. The idea of, of um, having is really more um, a quality. Um, self-sustaining kind of of life. Um, now, what if someone doesn't have a backyard? You know, the the book is 
building a better world in your backyard. Well, you know, mm-hmm. what about people in urban areas who don't have backyards, you know, that can build a, a girt garden? Well, I first want to say that the first half of the book is for people that do not have a backyard. It's it's for people whether they have a backyard or don't. They they can live in an apartment that doesn't even have a balcony. So, for example, radically deviant financial strategies, um, chapter ten, is in the first half of the book. And and uh, now the the second half of the book is of course going to be for people with a small backyard or a large backyard, and eventually maybe even the last part of the book is for people with acres. But it's kind of like, have you ever had a conversation about nuclear power with anybody? My guess is yes. You're asking me? Is that, oh, yeah. Yes, I'm asking you. Of course. Have yeah. you ever talked to somebody yes. about nuclear mm-hmm. power? Right? You've talked um, about it, right? I Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But do you own a nuclear a- power plant? How many nuclear power okay. plants do you own, Robert? Come on, come clean, man. Well, see, I just dumped one. No, yeah, no. Check I, your I pocket. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. I'm guessing yeah. zero, and yet you talked about them, and mm-hmm. and you also talked about solar panels, and you also talked about wind power, and you talked about hydro plants, and you talked about all these other things. You even talked about people you've never met before. And that are not your family or your friends. You've talked about all kinds of things that are not within your personal grasp. So the second half of the book, I believe, talks about a lot of very important things that might not be within your ability to touch today. Right. But I think that it's information that if it's in the heads of a hundred million people, and I know that that's a big number, and, and I and I throw this number around a lot when talking about this book because I want a hundred million people to read it. But I kind of feel like if if it's in a in the heads of a hundred million people, we can begin to have some very important conversations that will make our lives far more luxuriant, and it it may or may not be things that we can physically touch at this moment. And so if we're going to talk about a garden, can I at least talk about, because I think a lot of people, when they think about a garden, they think it's a lot of work. And it's like, oh, but I have a chapter about how to get 10 times more food with, or how to get twice as much food with, with one-tenth the effort. And, and I think that it's important to just know. And maybe three years from now, you will choose to move from an apartment to someplace where you can give it a shot, have a garden. Wouldn't it? It might be nice. I think. I think that uh, uh, an important point is is that half of your petroleum footprint can be resolved with a garden, and thirty-five uh, percent of your carbon footprint can be resolved with a garden. Not, and then that's not that's not even touching the whole thing about the toxic footprint. The, right. the I mean right. it's a it's a large and important component, and it can make a yeah. big difference. Yeah. yeah, and like you say, you know, even if it's not within your one's realm, 
you know, at the moment, um, you know, you can some even in discussion, you know, into, you know, talking with others, um, you know, it's like, you know, I, my nuclear power plant. The more I learn about it, the more I can talk about it with other people, you know, and uh, exactly. So, um, yeah, well, this is how we get um, change. What? And I think a lot of people exactly. they might have land and they're never going to grow a garden, and that's okay. That's okay. I, right. I'm not. I feel like the whole book is not that flavor of of preachy. It's it's more like oh, yeah. these are options mm-hmm. for you, and and if you want to improve your footprints, here's things that you can do, and you pick and choose what works best for you. But I I, I exactly. kind of feel like we're not having important conversations about how things can proceed, about how we can move forward. It seems like. Ninety-nine percent of the conversation that's happening in this space is all about who to be angry at, and then how to be angry at them, things of that nature, or just a conversation of like, how screwed are we? And that's it. That's the whole conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah but uh, the degree of being screwed. Um, yeah, you know, and, and you know, the anger is out there, and it, it, it is such a a refreshing um, switch, you know, to um, rather than being angry at something, doing something positive on the individual level. Now, um, in your book, in, in the part five, it focuses on, you know, the fact that um, one can, one's actions can also help counter 20 people, you know, the the, the footprint of 20 people with one's Action. So, I mean, so what you're saying here is that really you, you kind of focus on that personal change rather than, you know, trying to um, influence others to change. Correct. I, th- I think the whole book yeah. is about what you choose to do yourself as opposed to, and I, yeah. and I do think that there's a big part of the book that talks about, um, like there's at least one chapter I know of that talks about uh, why it isn't uh, very effective to um, be angry at people that are not doing the things that you've elected to do or that you would like them to do, that that's not a very effective path. But there's things that you personally can do. Um, and, and yes, you can choose to to offset the footprints of other people, assuming, of course, that you have acreage. And so I think the most obvious one, and I think everybody that's listening to this right now uh, knows about this, and that is to plant trees. Now, the one thing that they're probably thinking, though, is that it's like, okay, you got to go to the nursery and buy 100 trees and then go and plant them somewhere. And the thing that I'm suggesting is actually a little simpler than that, and I, I think this is something that most people are not, aware of and that is that um, if you happen to go to your favorite grocery store and you buy an apple it comes with five free apple seeds and you can stick those in the ground and they will produce an apple tree it's uh, i've got thousands of apple trees growing at my place from this very technique (laughs) Um, (laughs) it's, it's amazingly simple and, uh, um, yeah. and uh, there's a, I have a, a, a peach tree that the pit was put in the ground about three years ago, and it is now eight feet tall. 
Um, And so it's like some of these things just grow crazy fast. And, um, and the seeds are oftentimes free. It's like, it's the stuff that people are throwing away. And, Yep. So why not bury it? <laughs> a pocket full of seeds, uh, a pocket full of seeds yeah. can do a lot in a day, um, and it's yeah. like it doesn't have to be a day. It could be like I went for a walk, and I walked from here to there to over to over there, and then back home, and I planted twenty seeds along the way. I just threw them. <laughs> Good luck, seed. You're on your own. <laughs> Hope it all works out. <laughs> Uh, yep, I see Paul Appleseed replacing Johnny Appleseed. You know, I see that. <laughs> um, so, gosh, we're already down to the end of the hour, Paul. This has really been been great. And, and I do want to let people know that there are just other fascinating topics in your book, and and one that we didn't get to um, was um, in, in Chapter Twelve about um, gover- government mandated acceptable levels of toxicity. I mean, there's just <laughs> Um, a ton of information, and if you want, you know, to find something to get angry at, you know, <laughs> that might, might uh, you know, get you thinking. Um, but what, uh, you know, what is it that that you you and Sean hope um, that um, the book uh, "Building a Better World from Your Backyard" is going to do for the reader? I hope uh, that the reader will be happier. And have more money, and I I hope that I can guide them to an early retirement. So um, rather than you know doing the worky job for uh, 40 years, that maybe three years from now they can retire. Um, I hope that uh, they can then pursue the things that they think are fun and cool instead of doing the things that they need to do to pay the bills. Um, I I hope that uh, it's a life of more luxury, less illness, less sickness, and more joy. I also mm-hmm. hope, I and I am baffled at how to do this, and I hope that somebody will go to that permies.com slash BWB and tell me and advise me and give me feedback. How do I get this book into the hands of 100 million people? Um, and of course, the first thing to do is possibly read it and see if, like, you know, <laughs> you agree with the analysis. Yeah. Of, like, let's get this in the the hands of a hundred million people. But um, yeah. I I hope well, you know, I hope to yeah. make things better for, be for millions of people. Right. Yeah. Yeah. What's that? And and I agree. Yeah, I would say yeah, and, and maybe we can gratify uh, our life a little bit more. Um, well, this has really been a, a treat, Paul. You know, I, I really, um, this is such good information, and I really want to thank you for taking the time to talk with us. And um, and people can uh, certainly join um, your website and, and forums. Now, um, on, on the website, I understand you can people can um, subscribe or register. What what's that about? We have the ability for you to register so you could post. Uh, we have the dailyish email uh, that you can sign up for. Uh, I think we've got like 39 freebies that different people have supplied for anybody who signs up for the dailyish email. Um, we've got all kinds of stuff that people can sign up for. And, of course, you know, to be able to get the book and my other things, videos, movies, stuff like that. 
Great. Well, thank you, Paul. I really appreciate it, and I, I look forward to um, following you more and, and, and uh, implementing some of these things into my life. Thank you, Robert. For oh, you're very welcome. You're very welcome. Again, everyone, today my special guest has been Paul Wheaton. He, along with Sean Klassen-Coop, authored the book, Building a Better World in Your Backyard, Instead of Being Angry at Bad Guys. And again, you can find out more by visiting the website, which is permies.com forward slash BWB, and that's P-E-R-M-I-E-S dot com forward slash BWB. So everyone, I want to thank you for joining us for this edition of the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. And until we meet again, thank you for tuning in. You've been listening to the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Remember, our show is available as a free podcast from Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio. To follow our show, visit our homepage at byteradio.me and select the platform you use most. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Byte Radio Me. Until we meet again, remember to be a bright light by bringing inspiration to your world and to the lives of those you touch.